These are for allergies, in case you're wondering. I don't anticipate crying, although I may. The reading that you just heard was a compilation of Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. This is one of only a handful of passages in Scripture that are in all four Gospels. It's such a familiar story that everyone knows it as the triumphal entry. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, and they're laying branches along his path. It's such an iconic scene, these branches on the road, that today, in the church calendar, we call this Palm Sunday. Now, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, and I've been reading the Bible since I was a child. And when I prepare to preach, I do my very, very best to come to the text with fresh eyes and try to read it like I've never heard it before. I try to set aside my assumptions. And that is really hard to do with a, with a passage as familiar as this one. So as I read slowly over the last couple months all of these gospel accounts of Jesus entering Jerusalem, do you know what I discovered? This passage is really weird. <laughs> Why did Jesus ride a donkey when he always walked into Jerusalem before? When the disciples found the donkey, why in the world did they throw their clothes over the donkey's back? Why did the crowd place branches along on, and clothes along the road? I mean, we know that it happens, but have we ever asked why? We sing the word Hosanna a lot in worship music, but do all of us know exactly what we're singing? I've discovered that there is so much more to this event than I even ever paused to notice. And I'm sure many of us are familiar with the text, with what we see and what we hear, but are we familiar with the subtext? This passage is full of symbolism, and it's really important that we understand what's going on. Prophecies that are hundreds of years old are being fulfilled in these very moments. Picture Disneyland. Got it? If you've never been to Disney before and you'd never watched any Disney movies, you'd have trouble finding your way around the park and you'd probably miss the significance of what you were seeing. Sometimes the Bible is like that. A huge, complex landscape that we need a map with a legend to navigate and understand. Today, I want to unpack this donkey ride for you. I want to give you a legend for all the symbolism and help you take in more of the message that Jesus is sending to his audience, and that includes us. Together, we will discover that Jesus was proclaiming and foreshadowing an unexpected salvation. So to understand why Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem, I think we need to go way back in history. I'm talking way back to when God calls a couple named Abram and Sarah to be his people. God establishes a covenant. That's what he called it, a covenant with them. And it was an everlasting covenant with Abram and his descendants. Now, part of God's covenant promise to these people is that they would be a great nation and the land of Canaan would be their possession forever. So, Fast forward, we don't have time to go through all the nitty-gritty, but fast forward with me through a couple centuries of drama. And now the people of God are named Israelites, and they are settled in this promised land. 
God renewed his covenant throughout all the generations between. The Israelites had been living in a theocracy. That means God was their king. And God was assisted by divinely appointed human judges. Now, this is a great setup. But despite this, the Israelites plead to God for a king so that they can be like the nations around them. So, God gives his people what they want. And he establishes a kingdom and he anoints this shepherd named David as king. He reestablishes his covenant with David and with David's descendants. And thus begins another centuries-long soap opera. Some kings are good, but most are bad. They're foolish and arrogant. They ignore God's law. They take up idol worship, and they violate the covenant with God. This leads to civil war, and if you know the story, the Israelite kingdom fractures into two. During the upheaval, God sends prophets to exhort the kings and the people to repent. But few listen. Neighboring forces and foreign empires gradually tear apart the territory of Israel, conquer the capital city, strip God's holy temple of its treasures, and then cart most of the Israelites off into foreign countries. As this happens, prophets like Isaiah are foretelling of a king in the line of David from the tribe of Judah who will take the Israelite throne and restore peace forever. Over time, Israel is conquered by the empires of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. 400 years pass between the last Old Testament prophet and when we see Jesus show up in Roman-controlled Jerusalem. These are called the 400 years of silence. Despite this, the Jews retain a really strong sense of national identity, and they have excellent long-term memories. They are still waiting for a king in the tribe of David from the line of Judah to take the throne in Jerusalem. So now, today, it's 8033. And for three years, there's been this man named Jesus traveling throughout the country. His teaching is wise and provocative. His power is legendary. In fact, he has healed everyone they have ever brought to him. And he fed a crowd of 5,000 plus with some kid's lunch sack. And Jesus preaches that the kingdom of God has come near. Could this poor carpenter from Nazareth be, be the long-awaited Messiah? He's from the right tribe. Well, let's see. Today, Jesus, like all faithful Jews, is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of Passover. Jesus and his disciples, they reach the, what was the eastern suburb of Jerusalem, and that's when Jesus stops them and he says, go over to the village next door. You're going to find a donkey and a colt. Bring them back for me. The disciples are a little puzzled, but, you know, they've learned to obey. And so they go, two of them, and they bring the donkey, and they get them, and then they throw their clothes over the back of the donkey. So uh, look at your sermon notes if you have them. Here are the first two parts of the legend for Palm Sunday. 
If you do a little digging in the Old Testament, and I've done it for you, but I've put the references for you so you can dig later. If you do the digging, you'll discover that the judges of Israel rode donkeys, and they rode on saddles made of cloth. The Gospels of Mark, Luke, and John, they only mention one donkey. But Matthew notes that there were two. And Matthew is very careful to note this because two donkeys fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. And this is what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the number of the donkeys, I think, is less significant than the act of riding them. When Jesus rides the donkey, he proclaims himself the prophesied king and Messiah. Mark and Luke, they say, this colt has never been ridden before. So on an unridden colt, Jesus proclaims that he will be a king unlike any king they've ever seen before. Now, I really want you to spend some time in Zechariah 9 this week. It's been a delight for me to spend some time there, and I encourage you to read it. If you go through the entire chapter, you learn that the prophesied king was expected to restore peace to Jerusalem and rule over a kingdom that would spread to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. Jesus' contemporaries had been forced to share their promised land with pagan Greeks and Romans, and they had been ruled by a Roman governor for far too long. During the 400 years of silence, the Jewish expectation for their Messiah became hyper-focused on winning back the Jewish throne in Jerusalem. And now, there are rumors of this Jesus and his incredible power and about the possibility that he could be the Messiah. And here he comes, riding a donkey. As Jesus moved toward Jerusalem, the crowd of disciples and other faithful followers begin to lay branches in his path. That's really weird to us. But the Gospel of John specifies that there's some, among those branches, there were palm branches, but there were probably others as well. So look back at your legend. Here's the next symbol. For the Jews, palm branches were prominent symbols of joy and rejoicing. Joy and rejoicing. This symbolism actually began way back in Leviticus 23, where God gives instructions for the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. The feast reminded Israelites of the 40 years they'd spent in the wilderness. Whenever they camped in the wilderness, they made shelters or booths made of tree branches. Every year, the Jews gathered in Jerusalem for an entire week to celebrate and remember God's salvation and provision in the desert. Tree branches, in fact, were such a prominent symbol of the Israelite story that Solomon decorated the interior of the temple with gold-plated carvings of palm branches and trees. But tree branches were also significant to Greeks and Romans. They'd long been symbols of peace and victory in the Greco-Roman Empire. So as Jesus proclaims himself the long-awaited King and Messiah, the disciples, and I imagine that among his 
disciples bigger than the group of 12, there were both Jews and Gentiles, those disciples lay a path of joy, peace, and victory before Jesus. And then the crowd does something that seems really strange. They take off their outer garments, like think of taking off your scarf or your sweater, and they put them in the road. This actually mimics the time when Jehu was proclaimed king in 2 Kings 9. People put their garments on the steps where Jehu would walk. They played trumpets and they shouted, Jehu is king! It was this huge festival, this huge celebration. But now, as people lay their garments in the road before Jesus, their actions proclaim, Jesus is king! And if all these symbolic actions weren't enough to confirm Jesus' identity as the Messiah, they're going to get really explicit. The whole crowd begins to shout, Hosanna, and blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna. That is a Greek word that is made from the Hebrew phrase, yasha na. Yasha na. Yasha na. Hosanna, right? So yasha is a verb which means safe, and na is a particle like the kind of, but it's an entreaty that was usually translated now or we pray. So the people rejoice that Jesus has come and cry out for him to save them. Luke 19 says that the Pharisees are offended by all of this exuberant and joyful commotion because the Pharisees think that this is blasphemy. They urge Jesus to rebuke his disciples, but Jesus he says that if the disciples keep quiet, even the rocks would cry out, Hosanna. And later we see Jesus enter the temple grounds and the children are crying out, Hosanna. You can't control or contain the joy of salvation. And now Luke reports part of the story that none of the other gospel writers record. He says that as Jesus drew closer to the city, Jesus wept over it. Why is Jesus weeping when everyone else is rejoicing? It makes no sense in the moment unless you hear his words from Luke 19, 41, and 44. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to say that the people did not recognize the time of God's coming to them. The prophesied king of the Jews is here to save, right now, to take the throne of God's kingdom and reign forever, but the people are going to miss it. All of the signs are right in front of the Pharisees' eyes, but they deny Jesus' power and authority and lineage. The disciples, these guys traveled with Jesus for three years, and they will abandon and deny him when he is arrested and crucified later this week. Jesus will win the greatest victory ever won, and the people will miss it because suffering and death on a cross was not the salvation they were expecting. The prophet Zechariah called God's people prisoners of hope. Prisoners of hope, Zechariah 9.12. In Zechariah's day, this was probably a positive, encouraging label. It was recalling their hope 
their eager expectation and their steadfastness that there would be a time when God would come and restore his kingdom and peace. Now, if we apply that same label to the Jews of Jesus' day, it takes on a whole different tone. The Jews are prisoners of hope in a Messiah they had shaped in their own image according to their own expectations. They had a narrow and rigid set of expectations of what the Messiah would be like, where he would be from, what position he would hold, how he would interpret Scripture, and how he would ascend the throne. Many of the people probably expected a warrior to come in power and kick Pilate and his centurions all the way back to, the, to Rome. Wouldn't that be an amazing story? They had no room for a savior to be a poor carpenter from Jerusalem. The Pharisees probably expected the Messiah to be someone like them. <laughs> you know, a little arrogant. Uh, um, they probably wanted him to be ultra-righteous and prominent, not some itinerant rabbi who has a hodgepodge of commoners as followers, and certainly not someone who breaks their Sabbath laws. Even the disciples didn't anticipate that to save, Jesus would allow himself to be arrested, falsely accused, and die the shameful death of a criminal. They were all prisoners of their own hopes. But those of us who have read the entire Easter story, we know that Jesus did, in fact, save. And we know that the battle that Jesus fought and the throne that he ascended were much greater than anyone expected. You see, God does godly feats with godly power, not human feats with human power. You got that? Godly feats with godly power. Because he is God, he will always do immeasurably more than humans can ask or imagine. I want to talk about Easter Sunday, and I want to talk about the salvation that happens then. And Duane said, it's fine if you talk about salvation on Easter because we're here to proclaim the good news. So get ready for the same message, different person, twice in a week. Are you ready? That's exciting. I want to kind of outline for us three ways not two, but three ways in which God's salvation is unexpected. And every time I say unexpected, think wonderful, okay? First, on the cross, Jesus accomplished salvation from sin. Many of you know this, but for some of you, this is a new concept. Jesus knew that there was something more important than having a human king on a human throne in a particular city. He wanted to restore people to right relationship with him. Their sin had steered them far off God's path of holiness. And when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the sacrificial requirements of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament and simultaneously enacted a new covenant in his blood. By his blood poured out on the cross, Jesus cleansed people of their sin. On the cross, he battled sin and death rather than Pilate and Rome. Jesus won the battle and rose to life victorious. Later, he ascended to heaven where he lives and reigns with his father. And he's sitting on the throne with a capital T. And the, it's the eternal throne of the kingdom of God with dominion over heaven and earth. 
Jesus had to take the cross to take the throne. That was wildly unexpected and so completely wonderful. Jesus' salvation was also unexpected because it was for all. And by all, I mean several things. Sure, he died for the sins of his people, the Jews, but he did something better. Hear this familiar truth from John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus died for the world, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, the Samaritans, the Romans, and the Egyptians. He died not just to save his disciples or his own race, he also died for their enemies, their oppressors, and their enslavers. Now, I'm sure that some of the Jews would take great offense at my words, but Paul backs me up in Romans 3, to 24. Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace. But it wasn't just about Jew and Gentile. Jesus cleansed all people of sin and opened the gates of a kingdom where every human status and stigma are leveled. We know this truth from Galatians 3, 26 through 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Friends, we live in a really hostile world, in a hostile culture and society, and it feeds us lies every single day. Every day I counsel people who feel broken, unworthy, and alone. We all seem to have, when it comes down to it, a hang-up that makes us, just me, myself, irredeemable. Even people who know Jesus feel this way. Maybe it's something that you've done or something that's been done to you that you can't forgive. Maybe it's addiction or doubt or anger or comparison or a broken relationship. Maybe it's sexual thoughts that seem to control you. A few years ago, one of my dear friends confessed to me that she struggles with same-sex attraction. My friend is married and she has kids. She is deeply devoted and loves her husband, and she is committed to her family, but she is also plagued by an attraction to women. As she poured out her story to me, and I think it had been bottled up for many, many years, she's just pouring this story out to me, it painted an image of God who's sitting closely beside her on the stage of her life, but if you look at the back, there's a door in the back slightly ajar. She believed that if her life continued to be this messy, God would quietly escape out the back door. The subtext of her story is that she fears that her struggle is greater than God's love and that eventually God will give up on her. How many of us, for one reason or another, feel like my friend? 
As a pastor, I know that these fears and insecurities are very common. Trust me, they're very common. Shame haunts so many of us, even us believers. But hear this truth, brothers and sisters. Just as I told my friend that day, God does not have a back door. How many of us feel that he does? But the truth is that there's no back door. When God sent his son to die for us on the cross, it was for all. He knew every soul, every sin, and every struggle in every age. If you think the people are worse today than they were when Jesus died, you're wrong. It's just not true. He knew that we weren't worthy, that we are sinful and powerless to overcome our sins and struggles by our own strength. And that is precisely why he sent Jesus to die. Because God so loved the world. He sacrificed the life of his one beloved son for all of us. God knows you. God so loves you. Jesus is king, and he has come to save all. Isn't that unexpected and wonderful? And if salvation from sins for all weren't enough, if that weren't good enough, we can also depend on God for another kind of salvation. Salvation from our circumstances. If God's power can conquer sin and death, then he can certainly free us from everything that enslaves us. He can remove every roadblock and he can work miracles through our limitations. But often... God doesn't intercede the way we expect. Take, for example, the story of Jesus and the paralyzed man from Luke chapter 5. Many of you are familiar with this story. There's a man, and he's paralyzed, and his friends hear of Jesus' power to heal. So they get the man on his mat, and they pick up the mat, and they carry him to the village where Jesus is teaching, and when they get there, The crowds have so packed the house and the doorway and all the surrounding areas where Jesus is that they can't get to him. So the friends take this guy up on the roof and they take away the tiles of the roof and underneath the tile there's some straw and there's some mud and they're probably cutting through that, clawing through it with their bare hands. And when the hole is big enough, they lower their friend through the hole. Now, can anyone, anyone finish this quote correctly? When Jesus saw their faith, he said, some people know what really happened, but what you might expect is, friend, be healed, right? That's why they were there. But Jesus um, says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Not what they were expecting. The paralyzed man and his friends were hoping for healing, That is why they made this big trek. That is why they went through the roof. They wanted healing for this paralyzed man. But Jesus, in his divine wisdom, knew that redeeming the man's soul was far more important than healing his body. It's only after a verbal sparring with the Pharisees over his authority that Jesus heals the man's paralysis. Friends, too often we make ourselves prisoners of hope from uh, looking for salvation from circumstances to come in a particular package or follow a particular pattern. And as greatly as God loves you, he wants to set you free. I truly believe that. 
But are you coming to God with clenched fists, hoping, holding tightly onto your expected outcomes? What if God knows that there is something better for you, something that you need more than the salvation you are asking for? My parents and I live in South Phoenix, and poverty and physical needs are a bit more prevalent there than they are here in Chandler. And every Saturday, my mom goes to the local fries to get her groceries, and there is always at least one, I've seen a max of six, at least one person begging outside the door of fries or at the, at the intersection. So on one particular Saturday, a man approached my mom, and as she entered the store, he told her that he could not feed his family and that he needed help. So my mom was moved with compassion for his story about his family, and she asked the man what he needed. And the man said, chicken, uh, canned goods. So my mom, uh, being her generous self, got a cart, and she went on a mission to the meat aisle. Okay? This man said chicken, my mom buys a whole chicken. This man says canned goods, my mom buys one of every variety. Then she added some fresh fruits, some bread, some peanut butter. She loaded that cart down with nutritious food, spending nearly $100. And when she checked out, she was so excited, she pushed the cart to the exit where the man had been, and he was gone. He was nowhere to be found. She pushed that cart around, trying to find him. He'd left, and Mom went home discouraged, loaded down with a ton of extra food, food she didn't need. I believe this man's need was legitimate, but I think what he really wanted from my mother was money. And when she went beyond his expectations, he walked away and missed out on abundant blessing. I suspect that this is what happens between us and God. In times of desperate need, we shout, Hosanna, save now! And then we miss God's triumphal entry into our circumstances because we are hyper-focused on a particular outcome. God has greater things in store for us than we can even think to ask for. God, in his wisdom, knew that a greater peace would come to his people through forgiveness. Instead of defeating the Romans, Jesus died and made the Romans part of the family of God. Peace came by making Jews and Gentiles brothers and sisters. God's salvation is so big, but our vision is so small, and we don't see the ways God is already present and at work in our circumstances. When things aren't going the way that we expect or plan, some of us walk away, and we miss out on God's generosity. This makes God grieve. Picture Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. People of God, the how of God's salvation is always unexpected, and it's always unexpectedly wonderful. Are you ready to unclench your fists and approach him with open hands to the wisdom of his plan? Are you ready to relinquish control and allow God to shower his love on you in unexpected ways? Today we are here to celebrate and proclaim that Jesus is King. He wants to be your Savior in every way. Today we've given you palm branches. These are kind of miniatures of the full-scale version, but they will do. 
as we continue to worship through song, I want you, if you have the courage, if you can surrender your inhibitions to the Lord enough, to use this branch to express what is going on inside of you. If you feel thankful and happy, then wave your branch as a sign of the joy or the peace or the victory that Jesus has won for you. And if you feel discouraged, desperate, helpless, if you need God to save you from sin and struggle and circumstances, then you wave your branch. You could wave it as a physical sign of, Hosanna, Lord, save me. You might just lift up your open palms to the Lord and surrender. And if you feel so moved, I want you to know that you are welcome to come and surrender your palm branch at the foot of the cross and pray here whatever you feel that you need to express to our Lord. So take whatever posture. Now, I have watched this happen at Hope Covenant Church for four years. It's a little pathetic. I think we're all kind of wrapped up in, I don't want people watching me. This is just between you and the Lord. And if you can't do it here, go home, shut the door, be by yourself in the Lord, and you wave away. And if you're not in danger of poking up in the eye of your neighbor, you're not really into it enough. The Savior has come. The Savior has come. Like, he can do anything for you. So get into it, people. All right, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Lord, we come before you. Would you just let us drop whatever is holding us back from you, whatever it is, whatever sin or circumstance that we believe that, that our struggle is more bigger. It's bigger and harder to overcome than your love and your power. That's just not true, Lord. And I pray that for each one sitting here, that you would speak a word of love to them, that you would show them how much you love them, that you sent your son to the cross for each one of them. You know everything about them. You know every sin and every circumstance, and your love and your power is greater than that. And so, Lord, speak to them as we worship you. Have this be a holy moment of communication.